here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another new format, Books with Hooks, where we have two authors on the show to discuss their submissions with us, one for Cece and one for Carly. It's our great pleasure to welcome Sally and Catherine, who have each submitted to one of the agents as per our new submissions criteria on our website, and then Cece and Carly chose their work to discuss today. So we're going to begin with Sally. Welcome, Sally. Will you get us kicked off with your query letter? I will. Thank you. Dear Cece, thank you so much for your wonderfully insightful podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I recently found it and has made an enormous difference in my writing career. You have all given me a boost I needed to start querying again. 
I'm submitting to you my 55,000 word upper middle grade manuscript, The Truth is a Lie. Readers of When the Prophet Calls by Melanie Sumro and Fighting Words by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley will enjoy this book. It is also similar to The Sacred Lies of Minnow Bly by Stephanie Oakes, but for an upper middle grade audience. I want to be transparent and let you know that I was agented by Redacted and out on submission with this book until July of 2021. Separation from my agent was not personal, but was because she moved to a new agency. I have the submission list and would be more than happy to answer any questions regarding this situation. When 12-year-old Sarah wins an art contest, she keeps the win a secret from her family and friends. As a devout member of the truth, Sarah must follow the rule of keeping separate from the worldly and all they believe, or risk not being saved when when Jehovah destroys the earth, sparing only those who follow him fully. Sarah feels separated from Jehovah and guilty as she tries to maneuver through school and the truth. But when she discovers a dark secret within the truth, her entrapment in the cult becomes apparent. The truth begins to unravel around her one lie after another until Sarah must choose between staying or saving herself and someone she loves by running to the world she was taught to fear. I bring authenticity to the truth as it is a fictionalized story of my life growing up in this cult. I have also included the story of many others who I met online and in support groups. While the story is dark, I bring a brightness and friendship that develop, fulfilled dreams and passions, found families, faith, hope, and acceptance, all on an upper middle grade level. Readers will be invested in Sarah and her complex situation. I have also compiled a list of facts about the truth for editors who have made, have questions. I have two picture books on the now defunct Houghton Mifflin Me Genius app, as well as a picture book published by the McLaren Cochran Publishing Company. I am the past assistant regional advisor of the STBWI North Central California region and remain an active member. I have received an honorable mention in the 90th annual Writer's Digest writing competition, and I am an adult who managed to navigate through childhood with undiagnosed ADHD and dyslexia. So please excuse my spelling errors. I try. Thank you. Sally. Wonderful. Cece, why don't you tell us what you thought of that query letter? Let's do it. So Sally, thank you for sharing this with us first and foremost, and thank you for being on the show. This is so much fun. First paragraph, and I'm skipping the paragraph where you're talking about the podcast. I'm talking about like the actual query paragraph. I would suggest writing your titles in all caps or italics, quotation marks. It's just not easy on the eyes. It's a small thing, but it matters when we're reading like a whole bunch of query letters at the same time. I, You gave me everything I needed to know in terms of like the genre and the comps and what it's about. So that was really awesome. And the way you shared that you were previously represented was super professional and really just a good example of how to do it. If anyone out there is in the same situation, just do what Sally did because that was, that was really good. Now, plot paragraphs. This is usually where I have like a lot of notes. And I'll begin by saying that your pages are way stronger than your letter. If you want one of them to be stronger, that's fair. But you still want the letter to be just as strong as the pages, right? And the reason for that is really because of the vagueness in the plot escalation. So you start out with the line when 12-year-old Sarah wins an art contest, which is a great line. It hooked me right away. I thought it was a great place to start. And I was really intrigued. Oh, so like an art contest. Um, And I actually had the question, wait, why would she enter the art contest, which you answer in the pages, which is, again, it's great. But then when you start saying, but 
lot when she discovers a dark secret within the truth. I started going, well, can we be more specific, right? Because it feels like this happens early on in the book because that's what sets her on her journey of having to discover whether or not, not discover, but I guess of having to decide if that's even the right verb, whether she'll stay or she'll go, she'll go out into the world or stay within her community. So if it happens early on, I think it's okay to, to share what that truth is, or at least to give some indication because dark secret is just very vague. And then the same thing happens with the subsequent sentences. The truth begins to unravel around her one lie after another. Like, what does that mean? It's it's well-written in the sense that the sentence structure is strong, but I don't know what's happening. I don't know what, what is unraveling exactly, what the lies refer to. I don't even know what the general theme is. And I think I'd like to understand that more. And I don't think it's a spoiler. I mean, it could be wrong, but if it's happening early on in the book, it's not a spoiler. Um, I think it's a part of her hero's call to, to action. And also, I would love to understand the relationship between the art contest and the journey she goes in. Because I feel like there must be a connection because you started with that. So I think I would love to know that. But this is more of an extra, right? Like to me, uh, specifying what exactly is the problem with the truth or the things she uncovers and what unravels is essential. As well, saving someone she loves. No, tell me who the someone is. Like, I want to be invested in the specifics, right? However, the other note I gave you, which is about wanting to understand the connection between that and the, the art contest, that's more of an extra. I think it would make it stronger, but it's more of an extra. And then I loved, loved, loved the, the next paragraph where you mentioned how you bring authenticity because it's essentially a fictionalized story of your life growing up in this cult. I always appreciate it when authors share that because it just means that, you know, as an agent, one of the things that I, I strongly believe even is lived experience in fiction, um, which can be sometimes as, as small as like the emotion you felt that you're just changing into a totally different thing or as something more direct. So I, I always love, it's the first question I ask in every author call, what inspired you to write the story? And you're telling me, so that's awesome. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I just wanted to add one thing because this is a situation that we don't cover too much in the podcast, which is previously agented people and submitting again. So I just wanted to share my two cents on that. So what I think is interesting here is obviously this book has been on submission. So it is very important that you share that. And obviously, you know, as we said, I think we think it's great the way that you covered it. The only thing else I would emphasize is the fact that you are, in addition to this, working on things that are new, right? Because obviously as a new agent coming on board, you want to focus on what's coming next. So it doesn't have to be in this section because I don't want you to, I don't want you to delay us getting to the plot. So I don't know if you have to put that here, but in your author bio, you could say like part at work on my next blank, you know, you know, whether it's by a middle grade picture book, right? So just, you want to show your career author, right? Like, you know, you got a whole career ahead of you and, and you're excited about this future path. So I thought you handled that really well, but I wouldn't add any more to that section, but at the bottom, just kind of explain how you're prolific and things like that. <laughs> Excellent point, Carly. Thank you. Before we move on to discuss your pages, Sally, did you have any questions or comments for Cece based on her feedback on your query letter? No, um, I, that was very helpful. I have totally forgotten to um, include what I'm working on now. <laughs> so thank you. And um, the vagueness in the other paragraph, that's, that's very helpful. I can not be a lazy writer and get in there and, and do what I need to do. I don't think it's laziness. I think it's because you don't <laughs> want to share spoilers. That's part Nine of Nine times out of 10, it's like, but I don't want to ruin the story. You're not ruining yeah. the story. You're not. Okay. You're just giving us enough to get us invested so that I can ask, instead of being like, and then what happens? which is a good question, but vague, I can be like, wait, so when she finds out that they're actually laundering money and the FBI is investigating them, is she going to go to jail or is she going to cooperate? And if she does, like, again, I know that's not what happens in your story. I'm making this up in my head, but that is the specificity you want, 
Like I want, you want the question to be very specific about what is the antagonistic force? What is the exact dilemma? And who is she saving? Because she's saving someone she loves, sister, brother, lover, pet. I have no idea. Okay. That does bring up a question for me because it is something very dark that happens. Um, it has to do with sexual abuse. And I, I guess I should mention it there, but do I need to put something in about it might affect somebody who's reading this? I don't, should I? I mean, especially if it's something like this, I think you kind of have to, right? Because it, yeah. it also becomes yeah. a Because if it's note. hidden, yeah, because if it's hidden and then we don't find out until later on, somebody might be triggered later on. So you would want to specify that as early as possible. It's, it feels like what we've talked about trigger warnings before and all that. I know it's so, it really, I know authors really feel like it is a giveaway or a tell or something like that. But I just want to remind you and, you know, everybody listening that the point of the query is just to hook us, right? The whole point of the query is to get us to want more. And yes, for the sake of this podcast, we're going right from query into pages. But a lot of times I'm reading the query, requesting the material, and then reading the chapters like weeks later sometimes, right? And so there is a very distinct moment that happens between the two of them. So I I would, I would say, give us more, as Cece said, right? Give it, give us more there. And in addition to the content note, it's also the treatment. If the secret that's going to be unraveled is that kind of secret, the treatment of the part before the secret even comes to play is totally different from the treatment of a different secret. So it does matter. The tone matters. I would just, I would just say it. And I don't know enough about middle grade to give you any real suggestions of whether this is okay or not. I mean, I've obviously read middle grade as a kid, but that's where my experience ends. I am not a middle grade agent at all, but it seems really dark, which I typically love, but I also represent adult. Okay, right. So Sally, will you give us an indication of what's contained in those opening pages? Okay, so the opening pages is setting up my character uh, in school and how she's um, trying to stay invisible and away from the world. And she's very afraid of anybody coming up to her and talking to her and interacting with them because she's just been taught to fear the world. The world can take her away from Jehovah and then she will lose her life. So it's she has to go to school, obviously, but but she's also um, starting to question things. You know, she really wants to do her art and she's not understanding why art is a bad thing. She's not allowed to participate in sports or do any music or anything like that. So she's just starting to question that in the beginning. And she does have one friend who is in the world. She kind of keeps her at an arm's length away because she can't let her in. So that's the beginning of the story. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Cece, what was your take on those opening pages? I need to take a second to say that the writing is really, really, really strong. Like like I said, the pages are, it's a good letter, but the pages are really, really spectacular. The writing is excellent. You, you have a real talent. I, I think you should be really proud of this. I'll, I'll skip line notes because you'll get a copy of, of my notes and you'll know like stuff like I would move this sentence to the end of the paragraph. But I think my big picture note for you would be that you're starting in the right place, which is excellent. I am missing, I think you need to layer in emotion, specifically emotion about her art. I'll, I'll elaborate. We see her in the classroom and Val looks at her drawing of butterflies, right? And then when she looks at another drawing, it's of Armageddon. We get Val's reaction really subtly too, like the silence. I love that. We also get, I'm forgetting, Bailey's reaction. Excellent. We don't get her reaction, right? Like I wanted, I wanted her reaction. I don't know if this is intentional, but 
I strongly recommend that Sarah's emotional makeup be inserted into this page. For example, is she proud when Val gives her a compliment? Does she feel a, a spike of, of pride, you know, in a good way? Or maybe in a bad way. Maybe she, she feels conflicted about feeling pride. Maybe pride is sinful. And then you can layer in all these complicated emotions. When, when Val looks at, and Bailey too, looks at the picture of Armageddon and you, get a, you give us an exact description of what's on the page, but there's no emotion woven in. And I wanted the emotion to be woven in. I don't, like, I get that they are safe during Armageddon, right? And then behind them, the, the bolts of lightning are shooting down on the, on the non-believers. But what does that make you feel? Not you, Sarah. What does that make Sarah feel? Is Sarah, I'm, I'm assuming she's feeling all these emotions. I'm assuming she's feeling safe in her faith, but also concerned for her friends or, or maybe other things. And how she feels says a lot about her. And I am talking about emotions specifically as it relates to her art, because her emotions, when it comes to her friends and the boy that she kind of runs into and accidentally like raises her hand on his, very well done. I absolutely could understand where she was was mentally in, in these scenes. But when Val confesses that she entered Sarah in the art contest, Sarah doesn't ask what, what drawing she entered. She would have to ask. That would be the first question. Wouldn't that be the first question? What drawing of mine or what portfolio? Someone tells me that they entered my creative writing in a contest that I have no idea about. My first question is going to be, what piece? You know, like I'm not, I'm going to be dying of curiosity. And we get like two pages of her thinking about this and not asking herself that question and asking Val that question. She needs to ask Val the question. And then final, final note about emotion. She, Sarah bumps into Gabe. Okay. And then we see her thinking, please forgive me. It was an accident. I didn't mean to touch his hand. Like speaking to Jehovah. Is Gabe, this is a question for you, a central figure in the story, at, at least as a supporting character. Because if he is, then he, then an emotion about that grazing of the hand should be inserted like one line on page five or six or seven, something like as she's talking to Val, my hand is still warm from Gabe's touch. I don't know, a small thing because you want to keep the continuity of the emotion and you want it to, con to connect it to plot, even if only through internal life, because that will keep Gabe on, on our, on our minds. Cause we have a lot of characters here and it's not confusing because you did a great job, but if Gabe is important, just like Val seems to be important, then I want her thinking about Gabe just once more after the collision. Does this make sense? Am I being helpful? Yes. You are very helpful and you found a little plot hole there that I don't know how many times I've read this manuscript and never thought about adding the picture that was submitted. It just went right over my head. So thank you. You're too close to it. That's fair. This yeah. what writers do. We just, when we write as writers, we imagine, you know, that they know or we imagine the picture in our mind and we see it so clearly that we sometimes forget to have other characters asking these kinds of questions because for us, it's so, so, so evident that we wouldn't even think to ask it. So Sally, my question to you is, is what kind of emotionality did you picture her feeling as she was looking at these things in terms of what Cece was asking? It's kind of a mixed emotion. Um, she's obviously she's proud of her artwork but then again she's really not supposed to be drawing the artwork so i i'm gonna have to figure out that balance between the fear and the pride and but cc don't you think that's even better because that's even better emotions are better than anything else that's exactly right okay. first of all because it's realistic we never feel one thing only that's that's total bs right like so she should be feeling conflicting emotions. You want the spectrum, but you also want emotions that theoretically to the untrained eye wouldn't go together. 
technically you wouldn't be guilty and proud of the same thing. But again, that is exactly how humans feel. We are walking contradictions. We feel guilty and proud of the same thing. So please weave that in because it's so powerful. And I don't know if you noticed, it's exactly what I, what I was hoping she would feel, right? Like I was hoping she would feel a spike of pride, but then guilt because of her faith. So that's excellent. That's just even better. Don't go for a balance, go for layers. Yeah. And that push and pull is always so interesting. And like Cece said, when we know how she's feeling, that tells us so much about her as a character that you then as a writer don't need to tell us because we as readers are inferring it from this kind of push and pull tug of emotion she's feeling, which is the best way to learn about characterization. We have five minutes left, Sally. Do you have some questions for Cece? Or before we do that, Carly, was there anything you wanted to add? No, I thought Cece covered it beautifully. Um, congratulations, Sally. It's a, it's a really beautiful start. Thank you. My biggest concern was that this book had already been out on submission. And I do have the editors who had it at the time because it was pulled off of submission. So I was just wondering if that was going to be the kiss of death of this manuscript, if I should query my next one. I I don't know. It's it's how many you don't have to like spill the beans on the podcast, but do you have like a big number of people that have seen it? Maybe you could just give me like the number. I have 10 Um, that were pitched. Okay, 10 that were pitched. Five of those were no's. So there was still five that had it. Okay. Okay. So that's still, there's still a lot of people left to go, right? It's not like it was like 30 people, you know, so there's still a lot of people out there. It's very important information to know. To be honest, it will scare some agents away. It won't scare all of the agents away and it it won't scare the right agent away, but there will be some agents that are a bit nervous by that because not like anybody who's more entry level agent is going to have more, maybe perhaps more limited contacts. And if you pitched all the people that they know, then it's like, well, their resources are tapped, right? So you need to find like the right agent for you who knows as many people in this category as possible so that they have the contacts so that you can pursue this, the rest of the list. A question I have for Sally is, was something that Cece said earlier in terms of the dark themes, did any of the editors express concern about the themes explored that this is middle grade or was that not feedback that you got? No, but again, I think COVID has changed some things. So I'm a little concerned that it might be too dark. You know, there's some, there's sexual abuse that happens, but in the end, uh, as I said in my, my query letter, it does come out, it does have a happy ending. So Can I ask another question. Why sure. is this middle grade? And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just it, dark um, themes. Really? Yes. Like, I don't. Yeah. Okay. So originally, I did write it as YA. Um, when I got my agent, I actually had three agents who requested a full on this, and they all wanted to know if I would write it as upper middle grade. So when I went with my agent, I worked with her, and we wrote it as upper middle grade. I don't think I have the YA voice. You have a great voice. That's what I'll say. Thank you. <laughs> very, this, it's, it's very strong writing. Very, Thank very, you. very strong writing. Oh, and one more note about the, what she would ask about the, which, which pictures were submitted, which drawings. Um, she has to think, no, 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 that wasn't good enough. She has to, that's what everyone would think. Like, okay. I don't care how confident she is. I don't care how great her drawings are. There has to be a split second where she goes, I could have made it better. Or this other drawing is stronger. Or why didn't you tell me? People always feel this way. It's just how it is. Women especially. Yes. I wonder why. Thank you, patriarchy. All right. So Sally, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you found those notes to be helpful. I really appreciate it. Thank you, all of you. You are making me better. I'll send on those notes for you, Sally, once I get them, okay? Okay. Right, so that was Sally, and now we're welcoming Catherine. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Can you read your query letter for us, please? Of course. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, 
Thursday has become my favorite day as I eagerly await each new episode of the shit no one tells you about writing. Carly and Cece, your honest critiques of queries and opening pages have helped me as I polish my own work. Bianca, your casual welcoming style and occasional fangirl moments draw me into your interviews, really helping me get to know the guests. At the end of each episode, I've always learned something about either the craft or business of writing. I hope you will consider my work for the Books with Hooks segment, either as a guest or in a regular episode of the podcast. Title Redacted, 80,000 Words, is women's book club fiction with a romantic subplot. Reminiscent of Maybe in Another Life by Taylor Jenkins Reid and The Midnight Library by Matt Haig, it would be shelved near the work of Emily Giffen. 40-year-old Suzanne James thought she'd missed out on motherhood until her beloved sister died, leaving her responsible for three kids under three. Now, a year into this stay-at-home mom thing, she struggles with the, quote, joys of parenting with little help from her workaholic husband. Then she runs into Trick Bramble, the sexy musician who broke her heart in college in the 80s, who she never, well, hardly ever, thinks about anymore. She learns he only left because she didn't answer his letter, a letter she never received that could have changed the course of their lives. Wondering what if she boards a novelty time machine and is shocked to actually arrive in 1988 on the day she and Trick broke up. Back in her big-haired, acid-washed, jean-wearing 20-year-old body, Suzanne finds out what happened to Trick's letter and, more importantly, warns her sister of the plane crash that will kill her. Suzanne returns to a life completely different from the one she left. She married Trick, but it's nothing like she imagined it would be. Her sister's still dead, and now Suzanne doesn't have custody of the kid, who she misses like crazy. To fix this mess, she's got to get back on that damn time machine. But when it malfunctions, taking her to different versions of what might have been, she realizes she might be living the wrong life. She must figure out where she belongs and find her way there without sacrificing her sister. Sprinkled with pop culture references from the 80s and 90s, the story will appeal to anyone who's wondered how her life would have turned out had she made different choices. An award-winning TV producer and writer turned freelance blogger, I live in Atlanta with my husband and children. I'm a member of the Atlanta Writers Club and the Women's Fiction Writers Association. Thank you for your consideration. Thank you, Catherine. And may I just say that I quite by accident, messaged Catherine to tell her she was going to be on the podcast on her birthday, which she thought was a really, really cool birthday present. So you see on on the shit no one tells you about writing, we give good birthday presents. Thanks for that, Catherine. Okay, Carly, why don't you tell us about your thought? Yes, well, thank you for being on the show. Happy birthday. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the crew. We're, we're so happy to welcome you into the group. So, okay, so I feel very like, I think my comments are going to be really scattered because I have like a lot of thoughts. So this might be as not be as cohesive as I normally am. So Okay, I'm gonna start at the top. So comp titles. Okay, so we're talking about something where there is a speculative element, but it's essentially really still women's fiction, right? And you comped Taylor Jenkins Reid, maybe another life, which was a client project of mine, which I worked on. So I know that project intimately. And then I haven't read Matt Haig, but um, I've read some of Emily Giffen's work. And so when I'm trying to figure out through this whole project, whether it's the query letter, which we're talking about now, or the pages later is this concept of time and nostalgia and feeling and how we're supposed to feel because you have, so Taylor's book is, gosh, it's probably about five years old now. Matt Haggs is recent, but then Emily Giffen, like her bigger hits were, I mean, some of them might've been 10 years ago now. So I'm just trying to figure out like how you imagine this in the marketplace in terms of like today's audience. And then we have like, you know, she, she's, we're kind of in present day and then moving back to the eighties. So I'm just really trying to get this like spatial sense of what is it that you as the creator of this project are trying to make us the reader feel about nostalgia and, and, and about that alternate life. Like, I just didn't really feel like you're 
your mission as a as an author and a creator was as clear as I wanted it to be. So that was kind of like my high level, my high level note on on that concept. So and then getting into the middle part here. So I think there's too many paragraphs, right? So you have like one, two, three, four, five, essentially paragraphs kind of breaking up this concept. And it's I feel you it's a very complicated concept. You're trying to introduce the characters, tell us about the, you know, the the time shift. And we have the sister relationship too. like, and, and so you pitch this as women's book club fiction with a romantic subplot. So usually women's fiction always has a romantic subplot. So if you mean that this is like rom-com or something in the sense that these two are definitely getting together, again, I think that, I don't know, that positions it slightly different for me. So so again, still trying to like wrap my head around maybe like where exactly this belongs in the marketplace. That's some of the stuff I'm thinking about. And... And so, and now I want to think, I want to talk about Trick a little bit. Okay. So Trick Bramble, our sexy musician. Okay. So I am having a little trouble with him. I'm having a little trouble with his name. It feels a little bit like kitschy to me somehow. And I can't quite put my finger on if it's like an 80s thing or that was like his nickname or he was literally given that name. Maybe he had hippie parents. Um, Like I'm trying to figure out like where the name Trick comes from. And then you open this with a 40 year old and then she runs into her ex-boyfriend. And so up here, we're really focused on like the romance element. And then later on, we get to this like absolutely fascinating, like gut dropping out moment of this plane crash that kills her sister. And then she thinks she can go back in time to save her sister. Like that sister plot also seems very important, right? Because there's that huge moment there too. So I, yeah, I'm just like still trying to wrap my head around, like, as I said, like what you as the creator are trying to tell us about this project. What is the primary plot? What is the secondary plot? And just like the message that you're really trying to to accomplish here. So those are kind of some of the things I'm thinking about. Overall, I think this concept is strong. I think it's high concept. Like that's what women's fiction needs these days. Needs to be high concept. But I think I'm... I'm just worried about like, yeah, what's primary, what's secondary, what's tertiary, like in terms of covering a topic with with this many kind of different elements. So as I said, I'm a little bit scattered on this one, but I think it's really interesting. And I think it's high concept. I just kind of want to tease out the what you're trying to pitch us in terms of what we should be most excited about and, and what should be the primary plot here. Before Catherine answers that, I would like to say that I thought the Mad Hag was an excellent comp. And here's the thing that infuriates me, because if that book had been written by a woman, it would have been classified as women's fiction. He has a female protagonist who is going through this kind of crisis in her life and all of these roads open to her. And if that had been written by a woman, it would have been considered women's fiction. But because it was written by a man, I think the book is classified as book club fiction. I'm not 100% sure what that classification is. So that does complicate things, which is frustrating. Okay, Catherine, I'm going to hand over to you. So Carly, do you want me to answer some of your questions or? Yeah, answer questions, pick up my thoughts, like be the antagonist, be whatever you got to be. Just, yeah, (laughs) however I can help. (laughs) All right. It's a lot to digest. Uh, I know. (laughs) Trick is short for Patrick. Okay. I guess let me give you some background. When I, when I wrote this book, the sister element was not there. My first, my first draft. And someone read it, several people read it and said, it's too, it doesn't, the stakes weren't high enough. So I added in that plot, which became the primary plot. I guess I see it more like the Taylor Jenkins read book, which is, I know, older. But like Bianca said, it does have a lot of parallels with Matt Haig's book, which is more literary. I think mine, I wouldn't call it rom-com, but I would call it lighter. Yeah. Yeah. I think just like commercial women's fiction, I think is just like a good through line. And then depend. So it's really interesting to me that you added the sister stuff later because, and it's funny because you wrote the query like 
the original book and then you added in that later which is you know like it makes it seem like it's more secondary so it's interesting that it did come second so i would if it is like an equally main part of the plot i would make sure that that's up higher for sure okay my other question i had wanted to ask you i had some feedback on this that said it got really vague toward the end of the summary and that i should spell out more of what happens but i i thought that was too many spoilers I think this is long-ish as it is. And so I, I do think we need we need to rewrite the, the middle section here because, as I said, I think the sister bit needs to be up higher. I think it needs to be just commercial women's fiction. Like, I don't think you need any, like, slash book club, slash romantic subplot, just, like, commercial women's fiction. Okay. That'll cover everything that it needs to cover. That's what I would have pitched maybe in another life as would have just been commercial women's fiction with a high concept hook. That's how I would have pitched that. So that's, I think, just some of the, the keywords there because I think that you have so much going on. And I think that's why I was confused as the agent reading this is I do feel like you have a lot going on. So by the time we get to this last paragraph, you've already hooked me, right? Like I know this is high concept. And so the fact that you're not spelling out the details in the end, like that's not what a, that's not what a pitch is for, right? That's what a synopsis is for. The point right. of a query is to hook the agent, get me to request the pages, then you send the synopsis in the manuscript. So I do think you need to rework this middle section to be more confident about, like, as I said, like you as a creator, like what is the hook? Like what's the high concept part? It's obviously like the, and also sliding doors could have been a, a, a comp. That's a movie obviously from the nineties, but that, that was yeah. a comp that I used at the time. So there's a, it's a, you, you focus on like what's high concept about this, right? For women's fiction, it's like, how is this going to stand out? Right. So it's the sister passing and leaving her responsible for these children, right? There's that Catherine Heigl movie also about like her having to you know adopt some siblings, children, right? So that like, that's high concept. That's good. Then the time machine element, it can come off as yeah, definitely more commercial it's hard because I don't I don't think you need to spell too much out with this one because I again I think the high concept like if there's an agent out there looking for high concept commercial women's fiction like you've kind of got them so I think the key here is to really just focus on what is high concept about it and try to not bog us down with some of the other details at the end yeah try to try to slim it down I don't know Catherine if you've read uh, the post birthday world by Lionel Schreiber perhaps read that as well but that is more more literary but it is that sort of sliding doors kind of book as well so that might be something but um if it's not that literary then then definitely don't contact because she's very literary all right Catherine will you give us a bit of an overview of what's in those opening pages before Carly shares some thoughts on them? Certainly. So Suzanne arrives in um, Athens, Georgia, the town where she went to college, and she's wandering the street. She's noticing how things have changed and how they don't match her memories. And then she runs into her old boyfriend, Trick, who she hasn't seen since he left her for another girl 20 years ago. And she finds she's still very attracted to him. And she's talking to him. They were interrupted by a phone call from her husband, who's home with the kids, Annoyed, he has to, as he calls it, babysit, and he needs her help figuring out what one of them wants. Meanwhile, we see Trick taking selfies with two college-age women. And when Suzanne gets off the call, we learn they recognize him because he's in a local band. We also find out Suzanne's in town for a friend's mother's funeral, but she got the time wrong, and the service won't start for several hours. So when Trick invites Suzanne to have lunch with him. She agrees because she has the time and she wants to know more about how this man compares to the boy she used to love. Oh, 
welcome. Thank you. All right, Carly, what was your take on those opening pages? Okay, number one, timestamps. Great, we love them. We're timestamp people around here. So uh, we find out we're in Athens, Georgia. You laid that out for us. The thing that I'm very interested about is you said October 2008, present day. That's 13 years ago. So that isn't present day now. It's contemporary, but it's not present day. So I'm very interested in number one, why it's in 2008, other than just like the math obviously involved with like making somebody, um, you know, with the, with the time travel and making it in the 80s and you wanted the 80s, 90s nostalgia. So I'm assuming that that's why. But so I would take out the present day bit because it's not present day, right? So that I would just like strike that through, but definitely let us know we're in 2008 because I, I really do adore the timestamps. So my next thing here is that I'm very conflicted about whether this is the right place to start because I... Like somehow there is inherent tension built into this, right? It's like, she, you know, she's coming back for a funeral. Like there, we know that there's something happening here. There's a reason she's back. She's running into somebody, you know, an old flame, you know, as we know. But it's so tempting to go into backstory here. So tempting. And you avoided going into backstory here, which technically is the right thing to do. But in this case, I feel really uninvested in this lunch they're having because I, I don't know anything that's going on other than you telling me that there was a romantic backstory here. Like, so for example, on, on page one here, you're saying like, you know, little by little chain stores and restaurants were invading, pushing out the dive bars and the quirky shops that made Athens unique. Like, I think you need a little bit here of like the bar where X happened or the shop where she bought Y or like really infusing that personality in this moment without the temptation to dive into backstory. But just that personal element, like to me, it just felt like I, I wasn't clear on why this mattered from that emotionality point of view and then that brings me to to trick or patrick our love interest here is as a reader why i am supposed to be invested in him because we know they don't end up together and and there's this conflict in the in these pages about what is the same and what is different and obviously that's a big theme through the whole book right when we're talking about time travel and going back and what, what our life could have been if we married somebody else or this boyfriend did this in this moment and, and you know how all of these these butterfly effects would have would have connected and I think those are fascinating themes but there's moments where again you're saying like oh he's he's the same because he's wearing a t-shirt like he would have worn back then but he's different because receding hairline you know you said he added some pounds and he's looking you know better with those pounds or whatever and then at, there's one at one point he says oh she's exactly the same and then they get to the lunch and then she just keeps thinking about how there's a line like we're both so different now so again like I I don't know I think somehow I just this comes back to my my information about the query which is like as the creator I want to know I want you to lead me a little bit more not in a telling way but I I'm not clear on how you want the reader to feel about nostalgia how you want the reader to feel about this character um I I just felt like you were presenting us with these characters or presenting us with a scenario but yeah I was just kind of like missing a little bit of of why I should care as the reader and I also haven't read the full manuscript right so I don't know if this is or isn't the right place to start (laughs) or everything else that happens or what could be a better place but my gut is telling me that you followed all the rules and it's so funny like in writing we're like there's rules of writing there's no rules of writing some people think there are some people think they're not right like I feel like you followed the quote-unquote rules right you started at an interesting place you got them into a complicated situation you didn't dive into backstory so I don't know I feel like maybe you got to break some rules Catherine (laughs) maybe you're the one that gets to break the rules (laughs) I think 
Betsy, what were your thoughts on that? I forgot to ask your thoughts on, on the query letter and now's a good time for you to tell us what you thought of those pages as well. Well, I I mean, I, I definitely see what Carly's saying and I think that it's tricky because no, there aren't rules, but yes, there are and it's it's really an impossible question to answer. I think you did a really good job with inner life. There were a couple of moments where it was very subtle things like when he stepped back, she instinctively pushed out her chest and sucked in her belly. Um, and also when she mentions Vivian, like she said it as a question, even though she knew he did. Vivian was the one who introduced them. It's very subtle writing, which is exactly what we want. I am not feeling... I, you know, to me, the trick with with first pages is I'm supposed to be fearing something for you and I'm supposed to be wanting something for you. And that's not at all clear to me, although other things are. So I don't know. I think this is very much a case of would have to read the whole thing to even be able to give you feedback, which is a testament to your good writing, right? Because usually it's like, this is the problem. You can We can spot it right away. But maybe because yeah. of how advanced this is, we don't know. Yeah. And I think the right agent, like, that's why I think, like, I think, you're, I think your query is going to get, going to hook the right agent because it's high concept. And I think your pages are going to, like, I think you're going to find the agent for you because I think there's going to be the person who gets it and, and clicks all the vision together. Because with agents, you know, we get really excited when we see the whole puzzle piece come together you know in that vision and so I, I have confidence you're going to find the right person for you because I do think this high concept thing is totally what people are looking for so um so I think it's just a matter of like how these puzzle pieces like come to, you know come apart and come back together and, and exactly where all the right pieces are but it's all there before we hand over to Catherine so I want to ask Carly and Cece a question because this is going to have lots of different timestamps because we're going to be moving around in time one do you think Catherine can begin the book in the past with her and trick as youngsters at this moment when you know she is feeling this yearning etc so that we're more invested in that scene or do you think it might work as a prologue if we see that what are your thoughts on that see so this is why I think this book can break the rules I really do like <laughs> we're all about like here's all the rules right like I really think we are suggesting a prologue people. we're suggesting a <laughs> prologue because you're right because this is going to bounce around and cover as, as Bianca said it's going to cover multiple time periods like we're not married to this linear plot and by having a high concept book whenever you have a high concept plot you're allowed to make the rules whatever you want <laughs> because you built this plot it's high concept right so you're allowed to do whatever you want when you have something high concept and so I think yes I do think you can have a prologue of these two in the past but I do think it has to be at like a critical moment whether it is yeah like the the day you know they look back at each other and one of them walks over a bridge and they like never see each other you know some sort of like dramatic or some sort of like Jojo Moyes moment like she's really good at those ones the letter moment like yeah, you you are allowed to do a prologue, <laughs> and uh, and I think it could be great. I think I think Bianca's right. Yeah, because I, I really think you could do it well, Catherine. So that's the thing. We never suggest prologues to people, but I think if anyone can do it well, it is you. All right, we've complimented prologues before, but this is the first time we're suggesting one. So you just yeah. you just started it first. Yeah. All right. So Catherine, what are your thoughts on that? Wow, I'm I'm blown away. You're suggesting a prologue, but it it's started me thinking because I'm in the camp that. They're great if they're done well, but a lot of times they're not done well. But I've struggled with the opening of this for a long time. So that could be the solution to it. So I will try it. The reason I put present day in the timestamp is because it's her present day, but I can lose it. And, and you're right. The reason why it's said in 2008 is because of the math, which people have questioned. And I was wondering two things about that. Is that a problem? Are people going to say, well, I don't want a book set in 2008? And if I leave it that way, do I mention that it's set in 2008 in the query? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. If you had asked me this two years ago, I would have had a different answer than I do today. Because today we are trying to avoid the pandemic at all costs. <laughs> so the fact that you're going back a little bit and helping us avoid the pandemic, like editors, nobody wants to read about the pandemic, right? Like that's kind of the consensus of contemporary fiction. So the fact that you are letting us do the math, like, you know, go back a little bit, I think works in your favor. Two years ago, I would have said the opposite. I would have said that is that does, you know, raise some questions for me. But um, I do think with us trying to avoid the pandemic, but still, you know, still being contemporary, the math being fun. I think what will be the make or break factor for this is how good you write the 80s, right? Like we haven't read your 80s yet. How how well you write the 80s, how well you write the 90s, because how nostalgic we are for it and how you're able to capture it. Because if we don't feel, and again, like doing something well or not well is like the most subjective, you know, word in the world, right? So it's like, you know, whatever agent falls in love with it or whatnot, right? It, it could be anybody, but doing it in a way that people connect with and makes us feel something and all of those things. If, if you write the 80s really well, that is part of the high concept hook of this, right? And and what could set it apart or what make it you what makes it unique. So without having read your your 80s or 90s sections, um, it's hard for me to say, but this is that's the thing about high concept, right? Like it's so brilliant. You have so many opportunities to build your whole own world and you know make your own rules, which is so fun, but you have to do high concept right. You know what I mean? Like people will pick out like, oh, that didn't work or that didn't work, right? Like everything has to be executed, as you said, right? With the prologue, like has to be executed to the highest. So we believe in you. <laughs> that's what we have to say. Say, but yeah, you got a you got a tough job ahead of you. <laughs> Do you have any other questions for us, Catherine? Uh, no, I think that um, you answered all my questions and gave me a lot to think about. And um, I'm just very thankful that I had this opportunity and I appreciate it all. If, if you would like to try that prologue, Catherine, and send it off to me, I'd be happy to critique that for you. Oh, well, thank you very much, Bianca. I, I will do that. Yeah, we know it can be really overwhelming. So like just sit with the notes and if there's anything that comes back up, just just let us know. And yeah, you, uh, you're you always, I always say everybody's so brave for putting their work out there and everybody learns from it. But obviously we hope most of all that you learn from this. So let us know uh, how, the, how the notes connect. I will definitely do that. Thank you so and much. And you now have a badge. First time that we ever suggested a prologue badge. Just saying, there are badges. All right, I'll wear it with pride. Last thought to leave you with is it, it doesn't even have to be a prologue because remember, if this is a time jumping story, you can begin chapter one in the past, date stamp it, give us that insight into the characters, give us everything that an opening chapter needs, which is conflict, which is tension, which is an introduction to a character who's having an emotional shift. And then chapter two could be this chapter. And then chapter three, so because this is not a linear time kind of story, lean into the time jumping even more. There's nothing to say you can't do that either. So something as well for you to think about. Alrighty, that's it for us for today. It was wonderful having Catherine and Sally on our Books with Hook segment. And now we go to today's guest. Before we go to today's guest, this is just a reminder that we've got the virtual retreat coming up in January, the last weekend of January, and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services, and retreats tab, and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that again look at the website biancamaray.com and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter
We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is a graduate of Duke University and Harvard Law School. Drawing from her unique experiences as an attorney and entrepreneur, she crafts transcultural stories that touch upon contemporary women's issues. Black Girls Must Die Exhausted is her first novel, which she calls The Epitaph of My Thirties. A proud native Detroit, she lives in Los Angeles. It's my pleasure to welcome Jane Allen. 
Jane, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on today because your story is just so incredibly inspiring. And I know our listeners are going to be as inspired by you as I am. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So you have had a very interesting journey to publication. So for our listeners, you know how difficult it is to get agents. And after you get an agent, you know how difficult it is to get a publisher, especially, you know, one of the big five traditional publishers. And, you know, many listeners get a ton of rejections. They don't get agents. And so they feel like this is a judgment on their work, you know, because if you can't get an agent, it means the book is terrible. And you you have discovered for yourself, Jane, that this is not the case. So could you take us through your journey to publication, beginning with when you started writing this book and, and what inspired you? Sure. And I would just like to say that the thinking that because you can't get an agent or you have difficulty getting an agent, making that mean that your manuscript or writing is terrible is definitely not an automatic truth. And so I just wanted to say that uh, just before I start saying anything. And when it came to my writing, what I had done previously is practiced. I wrote nonfiction and I just started bit by bit. I think there are a lot of questions that you have as a writer about ability and worthiness and you know value of your work. And so I started trying to answer those questions for myself, starting with just, can I write something of book length? And that was in a nonfiction space. And I did that a few times and just learned slowly over the years and practiced writing and, and understanding what it means to write for someone other than myself. I came up with the idea for fiction, my first novel in 2016. And I did not ever imagine I would write a novel or could write a novel. And I, I didn't even know where to start, but I had this idea for a story. And the idea came from my own life inspiration. And that was how I was personally feeling. And I felt based on the experience I was living in at that time, and in general, <laughs> it's it was around, I'm a Black woman. And, and that societal experience at that time felt very heavy for me. And it was the time of the uh, U.S. presidential elections. We were at this place where regardless of who people were for, it was this real moment of potentially having the first female president. But it was also coupled with that, a moment of understanding that there's actually a glass ceiling that exists. And we were talking about you know, breaking a glass ceiling, but the fact that there is a glass ceiling, there, is, there are these limitations to the experience of womanhood that are unwarranted and, and still pervasive. And that felt heavy in that space. And also there was just the sense of, you know, where there were killings at the hands of police, there were all kinds of issues that were coming up with respect to the experience of Blackness in society that also felt very heavy. And I felt unseen, I felt unprotected, and I felt uncelebrated. And that was the most important issue, uncelebrated, because all of the other things I was persevering through, I, you know, I was shouldering it and pushing forward and still finding joy and still finding moments to smile and still having laughter and still showing up as a friend and as a partner and all of these things. So really, I was feeling uncelebrated. And I decided that that was a necessary thing to do to create. I wanted to write something that would be an acknowledgement and a celebration of the experience that I knew best. And so that was where this idea came from. And I thought I would use fiction to explore that experience and, and to do those things. So I did not know how to do that. 
And I had to learn and, and I decided that it was something that could be learned. And I think some writers, people come to the perspective of writing that, you know, it's something that comes from the heavens and you're just born with this ability. Uh, and I, I believe that all things, tools, skill sets can be learned. And so that was what I set out to do. And I took classes. I took writing classes. I took, uh, I wanted to learn the structure of a novel. How do you, you know, what is the structure of a novel? What's the story structure? How does it flow? I, I wanted to learn techniques for fiction. I, I took a class about writing strong emotion. That was really important for me. I took an erotica writing class because I wanted to understand that way of making people feel something. And that's what I ultimately wanted to do. I wanted to be able to use my word to make people feel something. Uh, and I thought that's the coolest thing if you could do that. So, so that really helped me shape up the, and, and also writing character. I really wanted to be focused on, on characters because again, I was focused on this aspect of a contemporary human experience. And I wanted the people that I put into that story to feel very real and textured and relatable. So that was how I came up with the idea and got started. And, uh, and it took me about a year and a half you know, with the idea and also learning how to structure story and, and to write, to really get into the uh, full on writing and, and to generate a manuscript um, that was almost two years to do that. But throughout the classes and everything, I would always, whatever I, I took, I would bring my my project and my idea into that class and use it to workshop that idea. So it was progressive. And, um, and I used everything to feed into this concept. And it materialized. I came up with the title. The way that I did that was starting with what I felt like was a truth. And the, the word that came up for me in that space was exhausting. It, it felt exhausted. It felt exhausting. And what I wanted to do was, A, give a perspective on life and what the value and meaning of life would be. So to me, that meant going from a survival mode to trying to figure out and aim toward thriving. And, and so I decided I would try to use story to change this and morph the meaning of the title of the book. So it starts out and to do all of those things I talked about, it starts out as an acknowledgement that becomes a celebration in the book and then ultimately becomes a call, an inspirational call to, you know, what does thriving look like? And that's what this character, Tabitha Walker, in the book is trying to figure out. So I decided, so I decided with the manuscript, I gave it to some friends who I trust, who are very busy professionals, very intelligent people, and asked them, could they give me feedback? The feedback they gave me was that A, they finished the book, <laughs> B, that they enjoyed it, and, and C, they, they wanted more. And they, you know, there was, it was very enthusiastic. These are not people that would tell me something just for the sake of telling. And that was, that's very important. I really wanted honest feedback because I felt like even if it was negative, I could build on that because I had developed a practice of learning and it, it I'd already made this an iterative experience. So I could, I had a, a foundation to deal with whatever negative feedback would be, but I didn't get negative feedback. So uh, my dad was the person that encouraged me to go seek a traditional publishing deal. I felt like having a, a Black female protagonist in this way in contemporary fiction, I didn't see a lot of that. And so I, I wasn't sure how this was going to go approaching gatekeepers who tend to look backwards at you know, what the market has been and don't really look forward and think what should it be. But I did it anyway. I went to, I, I think I went to about 12 agents or so. Some didn't even respond. The rest that did respond were either pretty nasty or <laughs> said, 
I don't like the, we don't love the protagonist. We don't like this protagonist or we can't connect to the story, which I thought was a little bit strange because I, as a, as a first time, a debut novelist, a first time writer, I thought, oh, maybe they'll say my story is bad or I can't write or this is a jumbled mess that doesn't make sense. But that's not what it was. It was about liking the protagonist, which I don't think is a prerequisite for fiction and connecting to the story, which I also think is strange because ultimately it's a human story. And because they're having an experience that might be other than yours, that does not exempt them from their humanity. So, so can I jump in there? So were most of these agents, and, and I'm just going to say it straight out, were most of these agents white? Because something that I've seen play out on Instagram with bookstagrammers, and we've seen it with so many of these gatekeepers, is that so many of them are white. And so they want to see their own experience reflected back to them. And the minute it's an experience that they can't immediately relate to, then they say, oh, this character is unrelatable, which is incredibly frustrating because as you say, human experience is human experience. Wanting to thrive and wanting to strive for joy is a universal thing. And it shouldn't be, well, this is a black thing or, or this is a white thing. So was, was that what you were feeling like, that these gatekeepers were sort of all white and, and so publishing had become so white that they couldn't embrace a, a story with the Black protagonist? Well, I think it's a little bit more complex than that. Uh, so the answer is yes, predominantly, but also with Black, I did approach some Black agents and they just didn't respond. So <laughs> that um, I did not get a response back at all from them. So I will say that. And I think that the issue is more complex than that. I think that the publishing industry as a whole is very white and the perspective is very white and the assumptions are skewed towards whiteness in a lot of respects as it pertains to who they think the reading audience is and who who is targeted and uh, and who makes the decisions based on their gut feeling and so there's a lot of things that skew towards um, whiteness and not really weighting or valuing the underrepresented perspectives. And that's art partially because of lack of representation. So it, it's, it's nuanced and it's, and I, and I think that uh, what you said is, is really a good um, indicator and reflection when people say, I want to see my own experience reflected. Well, if your own <laughs> experience is from the perspective of, of whiteness and society and, you know, what you see and what you live, then you're going to automatically feel like you can't connect because it's on the surface if you believe it that way. And then if you're projecting on behalf of what you believe is a predominantly white reading audience or people who only want to read about exactly themselves, then you're going to make decisions and project that way. So there is an element of bias that I think is it takes a lot to unpack and to think about and, and to really challenge. But I do see a willingness in some respects to challenge it. But that doesn't change the experience for a writer coming to and trying to approach this space and, you know, currently with something new or something underrepresented or a minority perspective or, or you know, something like that. So I think it needs to be acknowledged at minimum, you know, in this space right now as people are taking and making efforts to change it and to be said to writers who are writing these other perspectives. It's not that's not you. You know, there there are questions that you may have about is your writing good enough or are you ready for this space? And if you're not presenting something that matches 
you know, whatever the, the current leaning is, you may, you know, you may get a rejection that is not deserved. And, and, you know, you may have just have given up because I know a lot of writers would have gotten, you know, those rejections or agents who just didn't reply and they would have gone, okay, I'm, I'm giving up. And it breaks my heart to think that this book may never have seen the light of day if you had allowed that to, you know, set you back and go, okay, this is a reflection of the work. So, so tell us what you did after you got those rejections or the, that, that absolute silence. <laughs> I saved them. <laughs> And, but the the great thing, uh, and I think all experiences that you have are, you know, you use them or you'll need them in some way later, even if they don't necessarily seem like they'll be valid in the moment. And for me, I had spent a lot of time in marketing and really focused on audience and the market and and people and the, the end recipient of whatever is being created. And what I believe for the reading audience is that this book, even though it's from a, a Black female's perspective, is universally a human story. And I believe that the reading audience, regardless of what perspective they have lived racially or otherwise, um, or even from a gender perspective, could relate to this story. And so what I decided to do was give readers the last word. So that was something that was important to me because coming from a place of, of curiosity, um, I wanted to know, I wanted to know what things actually were. And I thought, you know, I don't, I don't need to get the answer about the, the value or my writing ability from this gatekeeper space. I really would rather get it from readers. And I would really like to learn something about readers because I do believe that the market's ready for something new and different. And if that's true, then maybe this opens the door for other people. So that was really what powered me through and past that feeling and that moment of rejection was that maybe I can use this to learn something or to open a door that seems to be closed right now that that actually needs to be open. So I used my knowledge of marketing and branding and everything I could pull together. I researched, you know, all of the components of a book production process, pulled all of that together, hired editors. I had a story editor. I had a copy editor, you know, all of the things that I could think of to professionalize the manuscript and the work and to put it into a end product. A cover designer, an amazing cover designer, Manira Musabal did the original cover and put it out and decided that to let it find its audience and to hopefully be able to open a door for you know other people. And so what did happen was that when the book reached the market, it did start to collect its audience and it started to become something that readers did gravitate to naturally and by word of mouth, in part because this was an underrepresented perspective. And they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm seeing myself in fiction or I've never seen this perspective before. And this is important for me to see. And I, you know, fiction is, is, gives that to people. So that was how we got to the book becoming, you know, coming to market and how I got past the moment of rejection. I just made it bigger than just me. How did you reach your audience then as a self-published writer? Did you, were you doing your own publicity and kind of reaching out to people to do interviews and things like that? Or was it a case of you published it? There were some influencers perhaps who you reached out to who loved it and then they started talking about it. How did you build up, you know, that buzz? Because the thing for me, and this is where I love 
booksellers, Mm -hmm. which you didn't have at your disposal then, is that if a bookseller reads a book and they love it, they will put it in the hands of everyone they come across. And so they become a walking advert for this book. And But if your book wasn't in bookstores, how were you getting it in the hands of the people who were going to put it in the hands of other people? So a couple of things. My book actually was in bookstores and I didn't even know it <laughs> before I uh, started even doing outreach. Because what I decided to do was that, again, I needed to know what readers thought. That was the most important thing because I'd had this experience with gatekeepers. So the first thing I did for the, the only thing I did and focused on for the first six months of, of putting the book out was just getting reviews. So I had my book on NetGalley. I had my book, um, it was available for sale and on platforms, but I just really focused on NetGalley and I focused on reviews. And it just so happens that a lot of booksellers are also on NetGalley and also book clubs and, and other um, play, you know, reviewers. It, it just it just so happened that, that that one thing did really kind of launch my book in a lot of areas that I had no idea about. Also, the way that I chose to distribute my book, I made sure that my book was distributed through Ingram Spark as a indie pub author. I don't like to use, I say self-pub, but it's not really self-pub when you, it's not like it's just me myself, you know, dropping a book into, it, it's a whole undertaking. So I think, you know, when we use the, that nomenclature, it, it sort of negates a lot of the elements that a lot of writers who are publishing independently have to do and and expenses we have to undertake and teams we have to build and all those things. So I think it's more indie pub, but I made sure that I used Ingram Spark, which allowed bookstores to purchase my book as they would, you know, any other book. As, you know, through their distribution platform. And I tried to make sure that the way that the pricing structure I set up was favorable to independent bookstores. So that was that was definitely something that I thought about and I did in the beginning. And so so that was, you know, the one of the big ways. And it did start through word of mouth and the reviews started to build because I focused on reviews and I asked people for reviews. And that was the main thing I did. And then I said I had a presence on Instagram and that was really the only place that I participated because it was just too much. And I was working a full-time job. So I said, okay, I'm going to be here. And at that time, Bookstagram was really, you know, building. It's still, it's building, it's it's built. But at that time, you know, it was, it was bubbling and there weren't a lot of authors actively participating in that space. So, but I decided as a book lover and turned author coming into, you know, that I would just participate in the community and learn as much as I could participate as much as I could read other people's books, do as much as I could within the community. And that would just be part of what I do and, and did. So that's kind of how my book started to make its way forward at first. So it was just me doing that at first and just doing things that felt authentic to me that were enjoyable and really focusing on reviews. And then once we got to a place where I felt like there was a good number of reviews, I felt like, you know, okay, yes, you know, what the gatekeeper said was not true. People, This is, you know, people, the readers want this book and this is important. So now it's a matter of exposure and scaling. Once we got to that point, which is about six months down the road, 
Then I did bring on a publicist, uh, Don Hardy, who goes by the literary lobbyist. She came on. So then it was her and, and me doing the work, but she was able to bring together the bookstagram community, do outreach now. So then I was doing interviews and there was more of a formalized approach to promotion after that. And then how did it happen that it became traditionally published? Is it that a publisher noticed the success and reached out to you? Is it that an agent saw the success? How did that happen? So no, not exactly. I want, what I decided to do as things continue to build, uh, I thought one of the best, at, this was during the pandemic now. So now we're in 2020 and I, things had started to build. I had speaking engagements. I was looking forward to connecting with readers in person and everything I canceled because we obviously, because we wound up going into quarantining and, and all of those things. So since everybody was at home, including me, I thought, why not use this opportunity to try to connect with readers virtually? So I made myself available to any book club that was reading my book. And I put that down on Instagram and I you know, made that known. And that turned into doing over 60 book clubs across five continents. And uh, it gave me an incredible opportunity to connect with readers. But in one of those book clubs, one of the people connected me to my agent directly. And once I, she and I connected, Lucinda Halpern, she, I told her the story. She was able to see the whole community uh, that was, had been built and everything. It was just all there. And it was everything that had been built over you know, the past year, prior year and a half. And she said, you know, this is really unusual to happen, but I think we can get a traditional deal for this. I think a publisher would understand. And it was the Harper Perennial team at HarperCollins who got it right away and acquired the trilogy plus a standalone book. And just basically understanding the community around the book and the need for for this topic and and to you know this direction. So it's they've been incredible as a as a team and they've been incredible to work with and it has just been a great a great journey. Well, you know, from my side for our listeners, Black Girls Must Die Exhausted is amazing. You need to pick it up if you haven't already. Jane, I absolutely loved it. And when I think of all the things that went into making this book and all the things that could have stopped this book from coming yeah. out in the world, it boggles the mind and it makes me so incredibly happy that you were intrepid and that you you just believed in it so much and that you championed your own work to this degree uh, and for the listeners out there let that be a lesson to you as well that no's don't mean it's a it's a reflection on on the work and I can't wait to read your next one and your next one and your next one and to have you back on the show Jane we wish you much much success thank you so much and that's it for today's episode if you have any questions about writing or publishing please email me at the shit about writing at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. 
The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.